All right, Wrestling with Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton here to dig deeper with you into the book of Revelation. And this week, well, I'll let Dr. McGee start it off. We come now to the crux of the interpretation of the entire book of Revelation, which revolves around this first personality. An outstanding and very intellectual minister years ago made the statement, If you tell me your interpretation of the woman in the 12th chapter of Revelation, then I'll tell you your interpretation of prophecy. At the time, I thought he was foolish, but I have come to agree with him. I believe that the identification of this woman is key to the understanding of the book of Revelation. So here we have this being the most pivotal moment in the book of Revelation. We've had all of these great judgments come along. We've had all these great scenes, even the throne scene in heaven in chapters four and five. But this is where the crux of everything seems to be. And we'll see that this week as we look at the first six verses of chapter 12. But before we get there, Dr. Brighton says the woman with child in Revelation 12, who is hunted by the dragon, portrays the suffering of the church during her mission, but she also reveals the glory and honor with which God, for the sake of the child, adorns his church. The church is pictured like the Virgin Mary, as the one who births Christ the Savior into this world. Chapter 12, verse 5. No other entity in human history is so honored. The church and her mission are the most important aspects of human existence and world history. For she bears the cross of Christ and the love of God, the cross and love that extend to the spatial and temporal ends of the earth. So we have Dr. Brighton agreeing with Dr. McGee. This is very important. And who is the woman? It is the church. Now let's get into the six verses that we are looking at this week. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, was crying out in birth pains, in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. All right, that's our text for this week. What does it all mean? Why is it so important? Well, we're back to, well, we have a woman appearing in heaven, clothed with the sun, moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. We gotta start there. All right, so as we normally do, let's look at see what Dr. Brighton has to say in the Concordia Commentary. The Old Testament more often pictures Israel as Yahweh's wife, married at the Exodus, such as in Jeremiah chapters two and three and Ezekiel 16. But at times, she is also spoken of as God's bride, especially in the Song of Songs. Even when God's wife is faithless, God still invites her to return to him and to become once more his lawful wife. See Hosea 3.1 or Isaiah 54.5-8. The New Testament more often portrays the church as Christ's bride, waiting for marriage at Christ's return, as in Revelation, where she is the bride of the Lamb. In chapter 19, verses 7 and 8, chapter 21, verse 2, and chapter 22, verse 17. The woman 
pictured here in heaven, was clothed in the brilliance of Christ as exhibited by the sun. Her face and appearance themselves do not shine like the sun, for that is reserved for the exalted Son of Man. Revelation 1.16, Matthew 17.2 And for the angel that stands in the place of Christ and represents him when commissioning John and the church. Revelation chapter 10, verses 1 and 11 but God has put around her the brilliant sunlit glory of his Christ, signifying that in Christ and because of him, she stands in God's holy presence. Clothed about with the sun also suggests how much God in Christ honors the woman. And again, as Dr. McGee said, you tell me who this woman is, and I can tell you your definition of prophecy. So let's look at some of the early times. We have Hippolytus from the mid-third century. By the woman clothed with the sun, he meant most manifestly the church, endued with the Father's word, whose brightness is above the sun. And by the moon under her feet, he referred to the church being adorned like the moon with heavenly glory. And the words, upon her head a crown of twelve stars, refers to the twelve apostles by whom the church was founded. Methodius in the fourth, early 4th fourth century says, For just as a woman receives the unformed seed of her husband and after a period of time brings forth a perfect human being, so to the church one might say, constantly conceiving those who take refuge in the word and shaping them according to the likeness and form of Christ, after a certain time makes them citizens of that blessed age. Then Tychonius, later in the fourth century, and the woman he indicates the church who in the purification of baptism puts on Christ, the son of righteousness, Malachi 4.2, as the apostle Paul testifies, as many as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, Galatians 3.27. So now we have the third and fourth centuries we're talking about this woman being the church. Dr. McGee, of course, has a different understanding of it. And he takes this verse and he lunges into a lambasting of us for using Isaiah 9 at Christmas. So let's, let's see this. At Christmas time, we all use Isaiah 9, 6 and other verses concerning the birth of Christ. This verse does concern the birth of Christ, but it does not concern us at all. Rather, it concerns the nation Israel. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. Who is referred to here when Isaiah says unto us, the church? No, it's the nation Israel. It is quite obvious that Isaiah is speaking to the nation Israel, and he is speaking not relative to a savior, but to a governor, a ruler, a king, one who has to come and rule over them. For unto us a child is born, Unto us a son is given. It is interesting that as a child he was born in his humanity, but as a son from eternity he was given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. We are not talking now about the Savior, but about the one who is coming as king. We will see that happen in the book of Revelation. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. There will not be any peace until he comes. When the rulers of the world say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. 1 Thessalonians 5.3 They were having a big peace conference in Holland when World War I broke out, and most of the delegates almost got fired upon before they got home. When men say peace and safety, it is idle talk, because man is working at peace from the wrong end. It is the human heart that is wrong, and only Jesus will bring peace. He is the Prince of Peace. Isaiah is talking to Israel when he says, Unto us a child is born, and that is the figure that John picks up here in Revelation. So here, of course, if there's not something else that could be, well, it can't be the church, so it's got to be Israel. 
which is why the dispensationalists have been going on and on in the recent weeks of the war between Israel and Hamas over the Gaza Strip about this being the parts of the end time prophecies, Bible prophecies being fulfilled. There are no Bible prophecies being fulfilled at this time. Everything has been fulfilled except for the one that has not been and will not be, at least for the moment, because that is surely I am coming soon. It is the second coming of Jesus that is the only prophecy in all of scripture that is not yet fulfilled. All right, so we go further on in verse 2 to get a better description of this woman. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Dr. Brighton says, Mary, the mother of the Christ child, is the model for the woman here in 12, 1 and 2. For the woman, as does Mary, symbolizes and represents the church. The woman thus represents the faithful people of God who longed for the Messiah to come, and who by their faith can be said metaphorically to be the mother of the child and thus to have given birth to him. After the birth and the ascension of the child, the woman becomes and represents the church of the apostles. The fact that the moon is under her feet suggests that she is the dominant entity in his creation. Under God's sovereignty, all things and all creation are governed for the benefit of the church, to spread and increase the church, care for her, and protect her while in her earthly pilgrimage. For the church is the jewel, the apple of God's eye. Very much like Isaiah says in chapter 26, like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we gave birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. This is all about Christ. Hippolytus says the words that she was with child and cried out in anguish for delivery mean that the church will not cease to bear from its heart the word that is persecuted by the unbelieving in the world. Tychonius says the church spiritually gives birth to those with whom she is in the pangs of childbirth, but she also never ceases to be in the pangs of childbirth with those to whom she has already given birth. For this reason, the apostle says, my little children, with whom I am again in travail until Christ be formed in you. Galatians 4, 19. All right, so if it weren't enough that we have a pregnant woman clothed with the sun standing on top of the moon, Verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. Here we have the picture. Seven heads, perfect leadership. Ten horns, complete power. As Dr. Brighton says, the dragon's seven heads reflect his deceptive claim that he, and not the Christ, is the spirit who has all knowledge to supervise all earthly matters. Each head is crowned with a diadem reflecting his deceptive claim that he possesses all royalty and lordship. The ten horns point to the boastful claim that the dragon has supreme earthly power. The dragon has dominating power and authority to exercise it. Any other earthly power symbolized by a single horn can exist and exercise that power only under the consent and sanction of the dragon and by his guidance. Jesus says to the Jews in John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
Victorinus of Petovium in the late 3rd century says, It says that the dragon was the color of red, that is, of scarlet, for the fruit of his work was given him such color. For he was a murderer from the beginning, John 8, 44, we just read, and everywhere he has oppressed the whole race of people, not so much by the debt of death as through all kinds of miseries. The seven heads are the seven Roman kings from whom the Antichrist comes. The ten horns are the ten kings at the end of time. So here we get kind of this almost premillennial idea, but definitely that this has something to do with the latter days. Tychonius says the red dragon is the devil. He says that there are, was another portent to indicate the hostile opposition of the devil. It was he who inflamed Herod with the fire of envy, so that he would feign to adore the Christ, even while seeking with all his power to kill Christ, whom he knew was to be born king of the Jews. For in the seven heads and seven diadems he signifies the rule of all kings, while in the ten horns we have the number of the ten persecutors who will fan the fires of persecution against the whole church in the last times. So again, we have this idea of these things being very much in the last days. But we move on into what John says, verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. The casting of the stars out of heaven, Dr. Brighton says, dramatically portrays the dragon pulling other angels with him in his rebellion against God. A third of the stars were involved with the dragon in this rebellion. Whether one takes the third as a literal number or as a symbolical number, it suggests not a majority, but a sizable minority of the angelic host. This is the only reference in the Bible which suggests the number of angels that the dragon took with him in opposition to God. The oldest reference to the Bible depicts him as a serpent, Genesis 3. Later, the serpent is located in the sea, Amos 9.3, a place of chaos. God did create great sea creatures which were good, Genesis 1.21. But since the fall, enormous sea creatures are often characterized as evil. For example, Leviathan in Job 3.8 and Isaiah 27.1. Leviathan and Rahab appear in the Old Testament as names of the ancient serpent, the devil. The dragon's opposition is not at first against the woman, but against the child. For the child is the focus in the dragon's warfare against God. Dr. Brighton goes on to remind us that extra-biblical myths also contain a similar evil monster. The Babylonian myth Enuma Elish tells how Tiamat, the water monster, is cut into by Marduk, the young god of light. In Canaanite lore, the great seven-headed monster of the deep, the dragon, was known as Lotan or Litan, a form of Leviathan. In Egyptian lore, the red dragon set Tafan pursues Isis and is later killed by her son Horus. In Greek mythology, the pregnant goddess Leto is pursued by the dragon Python. She gives birth to Apollo, who turns on the dragon and kills it. Ancient mythologies have a number of stories of a woman with child who is pursued by a monster or dragon. These myths provide evidence that ancient peoples had heard the truth of a woman whose child would deliver the human race from the forces of evil and darkness, embodied in the ancient serpent or dragon. These myths originated from the original promise God gave to Adam and the woman when he said that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3, 14 and 15. By the time that these ancient myths were recorded in extra-biblical literatures in which they have been preserved, they had already been distorted and given shape by pagan ideas and influences. In their core, they witnessed to the one true original story of a child from a woman who would rescue the human race. All of these extra-biblical myths, whether it is 
Babylonian, Egyptian, Canaanite, Greek, all of them point to the fact that they have a single source in the truth, the truth of the Bible, the one religion that God set down. But of course, they get distorted by time, embellished as well to talk about different ways of doing things and so forth. But how does the dragon war against the child? Well, we have Matthew chapter 2. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or younger, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And again, we have this coming to a head again in Matthew chapter 4, as the devil actually comes to Jesus after his baptism and tempts him in the wilderness. But Luther has this great moment in the Small Cold Articles, uh, part two, article two, on the Mass. Luther colorfully described the abuses and false understandings of the medieval Mass as a dragon's tail because it swept so many people into idolatry. In this dragon's tail, Luther includes purgatory, paragraphs 12 to 15, false miracles, paragraphs 16 and 17, pilgrimages, paragraphs 18 to 20, monastic societies, paragraph 21, relics, paragraphs 22 to 23, and indulgences, paragraph 24. All of these things Luther saw as a part of the dragon's tail fighting against the child. So now, we have this battle between the dragon and the child, yet we don't even have the child born yet until this next verse, verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God into his throne. It is striking how the ministry of Christ is thus abbreviated, the Reformation Heritage Bible Commentary says. No mention is made of his death or resurrection. John's readers would have known all these details in any case, and they sure are surely explicit elsewhere in Revelation. Here the emphasis is upon his triumph over his enemies in the latter days, to which matters the vision quickly moves, as we see in Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell her the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now we move to Luke chapter 1. Gabriel says to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. This is the male child being born to rule over all the nations with a rod of iron, but he is caught up into heaven. 
to God and to the throne. Why? Because John is making a quick point here. The incarnation and the entire ministry, passion, death, resurrection, and ascension are compressed into the word snatched up to God. John's purpose is to emphasize the final outcome of Christ's incarnation and passion and resurrection. That is, the dragon's failure to destroy the child and the victory of Christ over the enemies of God's people. The dragon tried his utmost to destroy the child when the woman gave birth. The action of King Herod in killing the infants of Bethlehem in his effort to destroy the infant Christ is certainly a part of the dragon's design against the child. But the child was snatched up from Herod's wicked hands and taken to Egypt. Matthew 2, 13-18, a type of the final snatching to God at Christ's ascension. Also, Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is to be viewed in connection with the dragon's continued effort to intimidate and to destroy the Christ, as in Matthew 4. Throughout Jesus' earthly ministry, the devil attempted to thwart his mission. See Hebrews 4, 15. But despite the agony and the suffering that the Lord Christ endured, the dragon did not and could not destroy the child. Looking back to the temptation of Christ from Matthew 4, Dr. Brighton puts in a footnote, Luke's account of the temptation reports that afterward the devil ceased for a time his tempting until an opportune time, Luke 4, 13. The most opportune time when Jesus was most vulnerable was at his passion when Satan entered Judas, Luke 22, verse 3. All right, we're up to our final verse now. Verse 6. The woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Dr. Brighton says the church would not immediately share in the exalted glory of the ascended Christ, for the woman flees into the wilderness, as was prophesied of Mary, so now the church would be pierced with a sword. Luke 2, 35. So now the new Israel, the Church of Christ, entered her wilderness experience after having seen and been the recipient of the great salvation worked by the Lamb of God. As the Israelites of old were cared for by God in the barren desert with manna and food and water and safety, so now the Church would be nourished and defended by God in her harsh and dangerous environment. What verse 6 has to tell us is that the church throughout the entire time between Christ's ascension until his return again to judge the living and the dead, God will protect us. God will nourish us with his word. Ecumenius says in the 6th century, because we haven't talked about Ecumenius at all this week so far, so we need to get him in. And so the child was saved from the plot of the dragon, but the woman was given over to destruction? Indeed not. But she too was saved by the flight into Egypt, which is a desert, and there was free from the plot of Herod. And there she was hid away and was nourished for 1,260 days, which equals three and a half years, more or less. Thus, for some such length of time, the mother of God remained in Egypt until the death of Herod, after which another message from an angel brought them to Judea. Ecumenius is not the only one to hypothesize, because we are not told that there was only about three and a half years that the Holy Family were in Egypt before Herod died and before they came back. But again, that all determines the timeline that we are with even Christmas. So we're not even worried about that, but this is what Ecumenius says. This is a very similar and represented idea throughout the church fathers. But of course, 
In this moment, we need to talk about our dispensationalist friends. Dr. McGee talks about, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared for God, or from God. During the intense part of the Great Tribulation period, this remnant of Israel will be protected by God. There are those who dogmatically say that Israel will go to the rock-hewn city of Petra and will be preserved there because no enemy can get in. But in our day, an enemy now comes from above and drops down bombs. The last place I would want to be when bombs start falling is within that rock-hewn city of Petra. To make that dogmatic statement alongside clear-cut prophecies is certainly to deceive people. This is not a clear-cut prophecy, and I do not know where the place will be. It does not hurt us preachers to say we don't know something when we don't know. To my judgment, it is tragic to be so dogmatic about that which is not revealed. If you want to make such a statement about a speculative scripture, I will not object if you say this is my judgment, or I think this is the way it will be. Well, in Petra is the place where uh, those who are of the 144,000 and those who come to faith in the tribulation do come for safety in the Left Behind series. And in fact, they are taking into account Dr. McGee's objections here and having some sort of supernatural force field that is around the city of Petra so that they cannot drop the bombs in from above. So we have this weird idea of this being the place where this wilderness refuge is, but that also means you have to have it being here today. That also means you have to have the woman in Revelation 12 not be the church, which most everybody up for the first like 1800 years of the Christian church has believed. But again, we bring our dispensationalist friends in because this is what is out there in the greater uh, media coverage of things like the Israeli-Hamas war that is currently going on. And we have been going through this for many years. I just finished a sermon for Reformation Day, actually, this past weekend, that talked about this being the fact that, okay, who is the basis of your salvation? The nation of Israel or Jesus? If it's the nation of Israel, go get Dr. McGee's commentary on Revelation. Go read the Left Behind books. Go watch TBN and all of the wackadoodles there. But if your salvation is in Jesus, stay here. Listen to the word as we continue to dig deeper. Because next week is one of those odd places again. Because this is an odd section of the book of Revelation as we get into the war in heaven between Michael and the devil. But like I said, that is next week. For this week, we have said enough. We know that the woman is the church. We know that the child is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was snatched up from here to show that he is victorious over all the schemes of the devil, just as he has shown it throughout all of his ministry and throughout all of human history. God continues 
to keep his people safe and nourished with his word. And that is exactly what I seek to do here on this podcast, is to nourish you with the word so that you may be able to wrestle with the theologies around you, especially when they bombard you in the media and every news broadcast. Amen.